This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, so um, I'm Clara Iwasaki, one of the hosts of the New Books Network China channel today, uh, with Professor uh, Hua Li um, from Montana State University, uh, who's here to uh, talk about her new book, uh, Chinese Science Fiction During the Post-Mao Cultural Thaw, um, out this year, um, or last year, from uh, University of Toronto Press. Sorry, uh, Professor uh, Lee, welcome to the channel. Well, thank you very much, Professor Iwasaki, for inviting me here and your introduction. Yeah, it's my honor to be able to talk my book with you. Um, and unfortunately, the listeners cannot uh, see this because this is not a visual medium, but this is a book with a truly, um, you know, this is very superficial, but truly fantastic cover. Uh, it's so beautiful. So I, I really encourage them to, to go out and, and get a copy because it, um, you know, it is it is truly a, a splendid cover for a splendid book. So, um, you know, pr- Professor Lee, I, I'm, uh, you know, maybe we can start off with just like, you know, how did you first come to uh, the study of Chinese culture? You know, how did you become interested in this? How did you how did you come to this um, profession? Oh, well, thank you. Yes, actually, I've been interested in Chinese literature in general since I was a teenager. At that time, I was in China. I read various kind of literary magazines and uh, literature books, whatever I can find, including uh, translated foreign literature, such as uh, books written by Dickens, Roman Roland, Balzac, and uh, Tostoyevsky, all those read. These early readings really motivate me to do more, to explore more about Chinese literature. So when I decided to go to graduate school, I chose to, uh, you know, study Asian studies in general at UBC, but specifically focus on Chinese literature. But my interest in Chinese science fiction started relatively recent. In 2010, the summer 2010, at that time, I was still working on my first book manuscript. I went to China to interview an author, Su Tong. At that time, I was <laughs> working on him, on his writing. So he invited me to a conference to meet him. So that conference was hosted by Fudan University. And the theme of that conference was Chinese literature in the 21st century. So Chen Sihe, Professor Chen Sihe, uh, was a host, um, main organizer at that time. So they invited not only mainstream writers such as Su Tong and Yu Hua, uh, even Mo Yan, 
but also some young writers of a popular genre, including two sci-fi writers, Han Song and Fei Dao. At that time, I I had no idea who they who they were. Of course, they are not very famous. So they gave presentations on Chinese sci-fi. That was the first time for me to meet popular genre writers at a academic scholarly conference. So Fei Dao gave a presentation, and he described the Chinese sci-fi writers emerging at the turn of the new century as a long, lonely hidden army. That's how he described those authors. I, I will quote, you know, something he, he wrote at that time. Those writers lie low in the wilderness where nobody cares to look at them. One day, when the opportunity is ripe, some valiant, generous, and warriors will rush out and change the heaven and earth. But it is possible that they will remain forever hidden and unknown without anyone listening to them, and they will just perish without ever seeing daylight. So Fidel's words really reflected the reality that Chinese sci-fi writers facing at that time, invisible in the literary field, but also they have the potential to rise to prominent in future. I was very impressed by his words. So I talked to him after the panel and uh, asked him to recommend some contemporary Chinese sci-fi fiction to me. So he sent me a compressed folder, which includes Liu Cixin's novel, Three-Body Problem, but in word file. (laughs) Can't believe that, that's 2010. But I didn't have time to read it until two years later after I, you know, my first book was published, then I had a chance to open it to read. Then I couldn't stop. So after I finished the three-body problem, then I, I Googled and found that the two uh, sequels came out also, Dark Forest and Death End. So I, I finished those two novels. Then I know what I'm going to do for, the, for my next project. So that's how I started to be attracted and interested in Chinese sci-fi, just recent 10 years. Wow, that's (laughs) such a fascinating, I mean, such a fascinating story. Thank you so much for like sharing this quote with us, right? Like that's such a, you know, I guess appropriately for a science fiction writer, he's somewhat prophetic, you know, kind of idea of, uh, you know, generals emerging, you know, warriors and generals emerging from this hidden army, you know, and that kind of thing. But also getting uh, the three body problem as a word file just seems like such a, such a like precious artifact, right? I mean, I know, like now, you know, you can buy it all around the world, right? And it, it's probably much more beautiful, you know, and like tangible, but wow, what a, what a, you know, as, as someone who is also, you know, kind of you know, I think all literature scholars are like a little bit obsessed with like artifacts, right? And like documents, right? And and the original, right? Like that's such a precious artifact. Like that's so amazing. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing that. That's such a great story. And, and just, yeah, like, um, you know, it, and you are really kind of, um, you know, ahead of the curve, you know, as a I teach in Canada now, but I'm originally American and, you know, like, uh, three-body problem was on Barack Obama's, you know, like reading list. And so all of my relatives who are, um, 
you know, not like particularly aware of Chinese literature or anything, they'd be like, oh, you, you, you know about that like three body problem? And I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, I do, you know, like that kind of thing. So, you know, you're quite far ahead of, of a lot of us, right? You know, now, of course, he's on everyone's mind. But that's actually such a wonderful segue into my second question, which is, you've already mentioned, right, this is your second project. And you, you seem to have discovered this new interest in the midst of, uh, you know, a, another, uh, your first wrapping up your first project or still working on your first project, which, um, you know, I also completely relate to the um, feeling that of like, oh, I have all of these interesting things and interests, but I have to concentrate on getting this first book out there. And then, you know, maybe I can work on this other thing. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious, right, like how, you know, how was the second project different than the first project? Were, were there a lot of differences? You know, it is, I think, a bit of a change in direction in certain ways from that first project. Um, so, you know, like what, what was that pro- process like? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think for most of, uh, for most scholars, including myself, normally our first book was adapted from our PhD dissertation. So when we wrote dissertation, we receive a lot of guidance, comments, feedback from our supervisor and the committee members. So it, um, and also when we started to convert converted into a book basically most of uh, most what we we've done was to revise it to make it suitable to publish in book form so but for the second book normally we don't have this type of help again right we are kind of entirely on our own and we basically you have to decide what is your approach, what you're going to write about. So that's the biggest difference, I feel. But on the other hand, I feel somehow for me personally, I think the second book is easier than the first book or than writing my dissertation because when we uh, started to write our second book, normally we are not a junior uh, faculty or scholar anymore. So we, we have more knowledge about our field, we know better what is still understudied and what your real interest is and uh, probably what kind of approach would be uh, more appropriate to the topic we are going to write. And also we have more experience dealing with publishers. So so I I just feel uh, it's more different than challenging. Personally, I don't feel it's more challenging than writing the first book. Yeah, that's what I feel about writing second one. Um, yeah, also less stressed because we, yeah, we don't have a deadline, right? I have to get this book published in order to get my tenure or anything like that. So I, I feel more relaxing when I wrote my first uh, second book. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point too. Um, although you you did, uh, I, I feel like you you published this one quite quite quickly too, right? Like. Um, it's not like a, you know, something that that took like twenty years. But yeah, I, you know, I think that's a it's a good perspective. You know, it's good to to hear. But yeah, I mean, you've been very hard at work, even though you you say you didn't feel the pressure of the deadline. Um, okay, so uh, you know, one of the reasons that 
I, I was so excited to, to um, you know, interview you. And uh, I think a lot of us, I don't work on science fiction um, in my own work, but just, you know, as someone who's interested in the literature and just interested in the topic, right, your book is the first monograph um, in English, as far as I'm aware, right, to, to focus on post-Mao science fiction, right, in this really kind of focused and systematic fashion. There's obviously um, a number of people who have worked on you know, lating and, and that kind of thing, right? Um, but you're you're the first one and that's that's really exciting, right? For and a great contribution, right, for those of us who teach who teach this literature. Um, and so, you know, I I'm kind of curious. Uh, I, I don't anticipate having the opportunity too often, right? Which is a good thing. Um, you know, our field is growing, but what were some of the challenges of, you know, of being the first to write something like this? Well, first of all, thank you very much for your kind words about my 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 book for working on this period of time. Um, actually, there have been some English research articles and book chapters published during this period of time on Chinese sci-fi, such as Ding Bo Wu, Ray Quincy, and Rodolf Wagner and Paula Levin, etc. Um, probably the most uh, famous one was Wagner's. Uh, I say, right, a lobby literature, Chinese science fiction was a lobby literature. That's what he argued. But I feel that there are still a lot of things haven't been done. That's why I decided to write on, uh, write a book on this topic, on this period of time. I think the, the challenge, there are several. First of all, because because of those early published essays, there are some established view on Chinese sci-fi during the post-Mao already. For example, Wagner's view that Chinese sci-fi was a lobby literature in the early 1980s, um, and some other scholars agree and quoted his words. Um, even though I see the insights of his argument, but I don't totally agree. But in order to, 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 to show, to demonstrate why I have a different opinion, I have to demonstrate why it is not a lobby literature. So instead, I say it's a government-backed literature, but also it has a characteristic of blooming, containing, uh, boundary-breaking, etc. So in, 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 in order to, to challenge or to argue with those established views, so I have to make a strong argument from my own side. In addition, because I deal with a lot of primary um, resources, materials, they are all in Chinese. So I have to do a lot of translation when I discuss them or quote them for both theoretical essays, articles, and original sci-fi stories from that period of time. This is part of the challenge, involve a lot of translation. And another thing is that because since I'm writing a whole book on this period, I'll, I try to give a more comprehensive survey of the field and also the writers at, the, at that time. So I have to think carefully how to structure the book, how to demonstrate why this is so important than worth of writing a book. I think these are the, the challenges I faced when I wrote the book. It's really interesting. Um, so 
I think, you know, you've done a really good job of kind of setting up some of the comparisons between, you know, your sort of approach and and other the approaches of other scholars. Um, can I ask a little bit about, you know, how you decided on the periodization of the book? Um, you know, why did you decide to end where you do? Why did you decide to begin where you do? You know, how did you kind of decide on that? Was that like a set period already, like in existing scholarship, that kind of thing? Okay. Yeah, it's a good question. When I did my research, I found most, of, even though I mentioned earlier when I answered last question, some articles published on that period of time. However, when I did my research, I found more research have been done on two periods. One is an early period from late Qing to early Republican era. And at that time, two books have been in English have been published, monograph have been published on the emergence of Chinese sci-fi. Probably you, you know that Nathaniel Isaacson's Celestial Empire, right? The emergence of Chinese sci-fi. Another one is Lorenzo and Andofatos, yeah, Hundred Days Literature, Chinese Utopian Fiction. So that's also from 1902 to 1910. So these two books on early period, and also I know that Professor Mingwei Song is working on the new wave Chinese science fiction that is from late 20th century to early 21st century. Then we all know there are uh, like four or three, uh, it depends on how people look at three or four booming period of time um, of Chinese science fiction, early time, 1950s, then 80s, then the new wave. So I feel that, okay, between 1950s and 1980s, I think I'm more interested in 1980s, <laughs> the most liberal period of time of PRC in PRC history. So that's why I decided to work on this period of time. Um, that's a really interesting, well, you know, I mean, I, I see your point about the 80s for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a good reminder that, that we should all attempt to to address the issue that that most interests and most speaks to us, right? That um, you know, I, I you know no no insult to anyone who was writing science fiction in the 1950s, but um, I think I I basically agree with your feeling that the <laughs> 80s is a little bit more. Uh, yeah. yeah. Also, yeah. I feel more related personally to 1980s because I grew up during that period of time. So I know the culture, the, the atmosphere, the all the books published during that period of time. So I just feel personally more related. <laughs> that's, a, you know, that's also like a good point, right? Um, and I, I also, you know, I've actually, a lot of the book kind of, you know, certainly you do these like author studies, which we'll come to in a minute, right? But you do, I think, evoke a much more kind of textured, idea of science fiction cultural production what you know how that interfaced with a number of other kind of movements both like governmental policies and other things and so in that way i do think that you know if as you say you felt closer to that time that texture kind of really comes through right in in the in the book it's not just like a i'm just going to study literature right it it there is a certain texture to it that i i did really appreciate when i was reading this um, 
So I, I think if if you uh, let's just move on um, to the first to so the book, I, I've kind of I, I felt and you can feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know, sort of divided into two halves where you take a slightly different approach. Right. And the first approach of the first four chapters, um, you know, each chapter um, focuses on an individual author of this kind of. You know, and these are all, um, again, you are the expert, feel free to correct me, but in my sort of non-expert understanding of this, these are all like very famous, you know, writers of this post-thaw period. Um, you know, I guess, how did you choose which authors to work on? Um, while these authors are, you know, certainly quite canonical, there are other authors out there. Um, and, you know, when all of the chapters also kind of attempt to uh, develop kind of through lines or kind of overarching themes that these authors kind of, you know, uh, are, are dealing with. So I guess I'll, those are two kind of big questions. I'll, I'll let you um, decide how you would like to answer that. Okay. Yeah. The reason I, I chose those four authors, as you said, they're, all of them are very famous and, you know, uh, and also their most productive, most published writers at that time they stood out aesthetically and uh, thematically as i mentioned in my book that chinese sci-fi had been in the category of children's literature since 1949 so basically it played the function to popularize science and technology among young readers right targeting at uh, juvenile readers instead of adult readers so, for example, those the early Chinese sci-fi in the 50s and 60s are quite formulaic with very simple plot. Normally, some school kids encounter a mystery. Then a college professor or a scientist came out to explain to them, you know, the sciences and technology behind the mystery. However, when those four writers return to the field in late 70s, then they started to make breakthrough aesthetically and also semantically. So, for example, they, they not only use various literary techniques to improve the literary quality of their writings, but they also expanded the scientific themes and also social themes, such as they, they started to write about alien invasions, you know, space colonization, robots of robots. Is not a, was not a new theme, but they, they still make through make a breakthrough in that topic. And also, for example, Ye Yonglie single-handedly pr- promoted the sci-fi thriller, this subgenre. And also, in terms of uh, social themes, they they expanded a lot, make it more sophisticated, such as reflection on cultural revolution, reflection on Mao's radical movement to change nature, terraforming Earth, and also call for the return of humanism to Chinese society. So, because of those reasons, those four writers stood out among other writers. Another reason I chose to write about them specifically was the rich legacy they left behind. So their writing, their science fiction, 
inspired and nourished, nurtured young generations of writers. For example, Liu Cixin, Wang Jingkang, Han Song, they all claim that they write those writers' fiction when they were young and inspire them and make them interested in sci-fi, and then they started to write their own stories or narratives. Another reason was that those four writers also wrote a lot of critical essays to explore what is science fiction. Science fiction should be more literary, uh, literary or should be more you know, pro-to-science. So all those arguments, those they try to define what is science fiction, what are the characteristics of Chinese science fiction. So all those theoretical explorations became very precious archive uh, primary materials for later researchers, including myself. Yeah, you can see in my book, I also deal with all those critical writings. So I think basically those are the major reasons why I chose to write about them, even though I, I I left out some other very good writers such as Wei Yahua, who also wrote very good robot stories, such as I want to divorce my uh, robot wife. <laughs> yeah, this is a very good story, mm, short story. And also I left out Liu Xingshi. Liu Xingshi also he's a, an archaeologist, also a writer. His best-known novella is entitled Columbus from South America, 美洲来的哥伦布, which is the alternate history about the origin of European civilization. So I didn't write you know, chapters on them. Uh, one of the major reasons is that the, the, I don't want the book to be too long. <laughs> and also because I somehow Tong Wenzheng has some similarity with Liu Xingshi, they're both archaeologists, and also, yeah, so that, and Xiao Jin, Xiao Jian Heng, because I wrote about Xiao Jin Heng with his, with the theme of robot, post-humanism, so that's why I didn't write about Wei Yahua, but I, I do mention them in my book briefly. Mm. Yeah, you know, one of the, I was sort of interested in your chapter on Tong Anzheng that, you know, an archaeologist is, you know, at least in American science fiction, I, I'm sure there's somebody, but, you know, it is not as common uh, uh, a profession. And one other thing, you know, for the listeners who haven't had a chance to look at this book yet, um, is, uh, you know, you include a, a number of photographs, right? There are a number of like visual images. And, um, you know, as someone who has taught Tong Enzheng several times um, in class, I, you know, I, he's not a particularly like, I, I guess I haven't gone out of my way to find a picture of him. But, you know, I, it was nice to see the put a face to this person I've been teaching for, for such a long time. And the photo you include, he's, you know, he looks a bit more dashing than your average science fiction writer. I think he has like his foot up on a Jeep or, you know, something like that, you know, which I think is pretty normal for an archeologist. They tend to be a bit more dashing, but um, you know, can I ask just like why you decided to include, you know, these images, which I think are also like a, a, another sort of source of texture, right. In this, in this book, you include pictures of all of your authors, um, you know, why did you make that decision? And if you feel comfortable, like commenting yeah. on that. 
sure. Actually, this is a very good question. Originally, when I submitted my manuscript, it didn't include any images at all. <laughs> so then, one of the the reviewers, I still don't know who was a reviewer. Who are who are the reviewers? But one of the reviewer suggested that I should include some images to support the texts. Then I I I thought this is such a fantastic idea. I should do so. However, it was not easy to include. I I could find those images, but it's not easy to include them all. In the book, because of the copyright issue, sometimes it's hard to contact the the people who own the images, right? So actually, I have to um drop several images, which I really wanted to include. But this specific one was given by Liu uh Liu Xingshi. Liu Xingshi and Tong Wenzheng were very good close friends, so. When I looking for his photo, I contacted Liu Xingshi, so he gave me this one. This is my first time to see. I don't think this photo was ever published. You you couldn't you cannot find it on internet. So that's his personal collection. So he gave me permission to use this photo. It was very precious. I was very grateful. Yeah. Yeah, it um that's such an interesting story. Um and I I think that is true, which I think also just sort of re- um kind of reveals our our weaknesses sometimes as teachers, which is like you just go to Google or you just go wherever and try to find something, right? But I think as you say, right there are these untapped, you know, things, uh, you know, kind of resources especially for people who have not been I think as as well canonized. Um but I, I agree, right? Like finding the rights to personal images, which often are just sort of like reproduced without any attribution or like no one says where they're from, right? That can also just be so difficult. Um, and if you can't contact the person, that, that can just be very hard. Um, I did, you know, there are, I don't want to keep you all day. Well, I obviously would be happy to talk about this all day, but um, I, I was sort of wondering if you would be willing to kind of talk about like one of the, th- like one of the ma- themes in one of the chapters, right? Um, since we're on the topic of Tong Anzheng, right? Like one of the kind of major themes that you highlight in all of his work is this um, concept of alien invasion. Um, so, I, you know, Obviously, he also wrote things that were not about that. But, you know, how how did you arrive at, you know, it, it can be so hard when you confronted with a body of of of, lit, of literature, right? Someone who is fairly prolific to kind of find these through lines, right? That's very challenging. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what your process was like on that. Yeah, right. It's a, this is a good question. When I approach those four writers, yeah, as you said, they wrote on various themes, right? Then it make me think, how should I focus? What should I focus on when I wrote about those specific writers? Then, of course, I write almost every piece of their (laughs) uh, narrative. Then I decided for each writer, I will focus on one specific theme they wrote about. It was because that actually 
their writing on this specific theme probably represent, in my own opinion, represented the highest level or highest quality of writing of that theme at their own time. But it doesn't mean they didn't write on other themes, and it also doesn't mean other writers didn't write about those. But just I think their writings represent the, the, the quality, highest quality and level at their own time. So yeah, that's why I chose to write Zheng Wenguang on his mass narratives, Tong Wenzheng on alien invasion, and Xiao Jianheng on robots. And of course, uh, Ye Yunglie on, on sci-fi thriller. Actually, many of the stories or narratives I discussed are not necessarily most famous ones or best known among their writings. For example, Ye Yunglie, his most famous piece is Xiaoling Tong Man Yu Wei Lai, Little Smarty Travels to the Future. But there has been so many articles, even books published on that piece of writing. So I didn't write it at all. I just quickly mentioned it. Instead, sci-fi thriller, very few people, I didn't really see any profound or in-depth critical articles written about that. However, that's his in my opinion, that is his biggest contribution to Chinese science fiction, single-handedly promoted or even created that genre. So that's why I choose to focus on a specific theme for each writer. I think it's also strategically makes sense. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's also yeah structurally well for my for my book. Yeah, that's why I chose to write on them. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about Ye Yonglie. I mean, I feel this kind of speaks to a kind of challenge in terms of um, kind of canonical narrative, right? That often with an author, their most famous work or the, you know, the work that people kind of notice the most kind of becomes set as the thing that they are known for. Right, which I think you've you've kind of talked about so nicely, right? But then, you know, it's obviously that can be important because it's you know it's successful or it, it's something that is kind of unique, and yet it does kind of fix them in a certain way, um, and then it kind of causes this blind you know kind of myopia around the rest of their work, where as you know as you've pointed out, there are a number of other things that he did do, um, and he did write about that are kind of less visible in a way, right? It's not that it's not out there, but like in terms of critical attention, right? Once those canonical narratives become set, it's it's so much harder to kind of break out of that. So I, I think that is a really interesting point that you bring up here, um, you know, in contributing not only to Anglophone scholarship, but also responding to, um, you know, Chinese language scholarship or other scholarship that's out there on these people. Um, okay. Uh, I. I think you've basically answered the question. Um, I, okay, like let's move to the second half of this book. Um, and so in the second half of the book, for those listeners who may not have, have read this yet, um, 
you know, the second half really marks a shift where, you know, you move from this kind of more author focused approach, um, which kind of happens in the first half of the book, to a kind of broader thematic approach with, um, you know, kind of looking at how science fiction literature of the time, right, post thaw, as you say, right, is translated and interfaces with other forms of popular culture. Right, film, Lian Huan Hua, and other kinds of, you know, media. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, in your studies, what prompted you to kind of take that approach? Um, I guess I'll, I'll start there. Yeah, sure. Well, even though my I said that in the book, I use a para-academic reading approach to write this book, so which means I'm not only going to examine the production of those works, but also the circulation, consumption, and the publication of Chinese sci-fi. So with those four chapters focusing on individual writers, then you can see the second half of the book from chapter six, I focus on a kind of genre, tech sci-fi. So instead of writing on individual writers, I wrote about a whole group of writers, actually who are less famous, obscure, relatively obscure writers. So I think chapter six is a good supplement to the previous chapter. So you're not only going to see all those famous writers and their excellent writings, but you can also have a, a more, a, let's say, a picture of the whole uh, field about some other writers and the themes they written about. Especially this chapter, I chose the title, Tech Sci-Fi. It was, uh, let's say, coined by Liu Cixin. Because Liu Cixin wrote a very famous essay, Xiao Disappearing Creek, which in which he wrote about this type of writing. He said this type of writing focused more on technical inventions, uh, inventions or innovations, which you know doesn't probably doesn't have a very high literary quality because they read more like a technical report. They focus more on presenting their technical ideas instead of focus more on the plot or literary techniques. So that's part of the reason why later it declined, overshined by those famous those writings by famous writers. However, Liu Cixin says that it's a kind of quite a pity though, that contemporary writers don't write this type this type of fiction anymore. So that's why he called it uh, Disappearing Creek. However, he said that they lay a foundation. Actually, I agree. Those early tech sci-fi lay a foundation for the hard science fiction that Liu Cixin and some other contemporary writers have written about. So I feel that those writers were words of writing, yes, um, at least a chapter on them. So in this chapter, I just survey various technical topics, themes those writers have written about. And also I did several, uh, some close readings on several pieces. Yeah, that's why I chose to write about this chapter. And also this type of writing has never been written about by some other scholars 
So chapter seven was on multimedia practice. I also think that is very important because multimedia practice of sci-fi differentiate differentiate the genre from mainstream literature because various tie-in products and uh, multimedia adaptations to TV drama, radio drama, animations, and the films, they created a huge profits to media outlets. So then all those media outlets treated science fiction seriously, hence helped promote the genre nationwide. And also those multimedia, especially those visual images, help the genre reach a much broader audience because a lot of people couldn't read and write at this time. They couldn't read fiction, but they can watch or listen to the radio. So I think this in general helped promote the genre nationwide and effectively. Also, this kind of multimedia model lay a foundation for contemporary Chinese science fiction. You can see that it expanded into games, even drama in performing theater. So I think the origin is started from 1980s. So I think it is very important to address this issue, just to show that the multimedia practice of contemporary science fiction didn't come from nowhere. It has a tradition there back in 1980s. It's a really interesting point. And I, I do really, um, and I, I remember really liking it when I read the book, but um, I like the point that, you know, um, looking at the way that these works circulate into visual media, you know, has a very different meaning for rural audiences, right? Which I think sometimes, you know, in a, in a world where um, literacy is much higher these days, right, that can be something that we often don't think about, right? But that is, I think, a really good point. Um, and I remember, you know, kind of noting that point and really being struck by it. I mean, it, it in, in many ways is like common sense, but at the same time, it's like, oh yeah, like that makes makes a lot of sense, right? Um, and yeah, I, I really appreciated that um, about that particular chapter. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, we're, we're coming sort of, not entirely done yet, but we're we're coming towards the end of the interview. I'm I'm curious, is is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you would like to cover? Oh yeah, sure. Actually, my last chapter, chapter eight, is also a concluding chapter. So yeah, in this chapter I draw all the previous discussions or arguments in previous chapters and draw my conclusion that Chinese science fiction in nineteen eighties it's a government-backed literature, but also it's, it was blooming, containing, and boundary-breaking. So in this chapter, I also argued with Wagner's, <laughs> explain why I don't agree with Wagner's uh, argument that it was a lobby literature. And also I relate... Uh, actually, yeah. for, for listeners who are not familiar with that argument about lobby literature, mm-hmm. would you mind just like reiterating what he says? Oh, right. And then, yeah. Right, yeah. So basically, he argued that Chinese science fiction writers at that time, they wrote about all those narratives in order to show to the party that science community was loyal to the government, to the party, to convince them they would be able to contribute 
to the four modernizations that you know the modernization of、uh, science and technology of national defense or agriculture and industry or this. Kind of thing, and also they they try to lobby the government to get more research funding, etc. Uh, so that's why he said, oh, those writers wrote about those fiction in order to achieve this type of、uh, goal. That's why he said it's a lobby literature. So I I just explain why I don't agree, even though I see the insights, and also I relate my analysis to. Dark Suvens' argument about what is science fiction is a cognitive arrangement, this type of thing, and I also deal with realism. How Chinese science fiction related to realism? Because when we study Chinese literature, socialist realism, social realism, all those terms issues, we have to deal with. That's something I cannot overlook. So I feel I need to. At least discuss it here in this concluding chapter, and also in this concluding chapter, I discuss how Chinese sci-fi in 1980s interacted with mainstream literature, right? Because they they cover they touch upon a lot of themes or share some common social themes with mainstream literature, such as the、um, scar literature. Contemplative literature or 反思文学 right? Reflective literature, this type of thing, and I also deal with some other issues that I don't have a chance to write about in previous chapters. But I feel I should talk about them. So basically, concluding chapter is also very rich.、Uh, I touch upon a lot of issues. <laughs> Yeah, this is the chapter I want to yeah mention more, and also I think one thing um you asked me earlier why I chose to focus on the specific themes. So um I think one thing I also want to to say is that because those themes resonates with the Western literature, Western science fiction also right because alien invasion, space colonization, terraforming Earth, robots. Cybernetics; these are also common themes in Western science fiction. So I, that's also part of the reason why I chose to write on those themes, because I I want to see how Chinese sci-fi resonates with the Western sci-fi at the same period of time, and what kind of influence Chinese writers have received from the Western sci-fi, and also what kind of、uh, changes or differences they show. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really interesting point. I, you know, I think that I had not somehow I had not like fully picked up on that when I, I read the book. But you're right, right? Like a- alien invasions are something that,、um, you know, and and all of the other themes that you you mention, right? Those those do resonate, right? They they are much more easily comparative than,、um, you know, some of the potentially some of the other themes, right? Or the, you know, the Tong and Zheng story that's set. I forget exactly when, but you know, in like pre-modern China, you know, or something like that, where that may seem less, you know, sort of comparable in, in certain ways. But、um, yeah, that's really interesting.、Um, so,、uh, what are you working on now?、Um, are you working on a new project? Are you going to follow, you know, follow up on any of these 
themes that you haven't had a chance to talk about in this book? You know, what what is next for you? Yeah, I'm still working on Chinese science fiction, but more on contemporary texts. And specifically, I'm writing about post-humanism reflected, presented in Chinese sci-fi. I just finished an article on Chen Qiufan's two narratives. Yeah, one is Waste Tight, another is Balin. So I just specifically focus on the post-humanism and the whole and the humanism, the tension between those two. And I'm yeah, that's the article I finished in this September with will be a book chapter. Another one I'm reading and I'm going to write is on a cyber fiction or internet fiction. Yeah, it's on the Xiu Xian, you know, scientific uh, immortal cultivation fiction on internet. Yeah, so, yeah, Xiu specifically. So that is about the transhumanism, posthumanism. Yeah, this kind of topic. I I'm still reading. Yeah, but I'm probably hopefully I'll be able to finish it in next February or something. It is also a book chapter. It will be a book chapter in edited volume. That sounds so interesting. Well, I I hope when um you have another book, uh, which given the speed at which you work, I imagine. <laughs> I don't want to jinx you, but it does not seem like we'll have to wait, you know, many, many decades, which I'm I'm really excited about. But, um, you know, the next time, once you have a new book on this topic, which sounds so interesting, um, you know, I hope that you'll be able to, you'll be willing to come back and we can talk about that at that time soon. I'm already looking forward to it. Well, sure. Thank you. But I don't think I'll write another book soon or maybe not at all. Such a you know it's well, a big I project. We'll I'm consuming, well, <laughs> but I hope. Thank you. That's true. Yeah. Well, yeah. um, you know, on behalf of the New Books Network, thank you so much for for letting us take up so much of your time. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for this conversation. This was great. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank uh, thank New Books network for giving me this chance to share my thoughts with audience. Thank you for interviewing me for those very thoughtful questions. It was truly my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.